Everybody, it is Tuesday. I am Ben Ennis. It's the Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, the fan. Blue Jays with a day off yesterday. They resume play today. As the Blue Jays didn't do anything yesterday, still gained ground in the American League wildcard race. Rangers forgot that that four-game sweep of the Blue Jays did not clinch them a playoff uh, spot. They've now given it all back. Four straight losses for them. The Astros now also tied with the Blue Jays in the loss column after blowing a two-run ninth-inning lead to the Orioles yesterday. And, of course, the Blue Jays do hold the tiebreaker in that one. Yankees, six back of a playoff spot as the Blue Jays start a three-game set in the Bronx tonight. That seems very difficult to overcome, but I've seen some weird stuff over the last couple of weeks and, you know what, throughout my uh, baseball-watching life. So who knows? Uh, Yusei Kikuchi versus Clark Schmidt. Let's go to the Bronx right now, talk to our man, Dan Schulman. How's it going, Dan? Ben, how are you? I- I'm very good. The last week has been very, very bizarre. Uh, the <laughs> highs and lows have been extreme for Blue Jays Nation. Are, are the Yankees still alive going into this series? Uh, I mean, they've got a pulse, but for them to get in, like if you crunch the numbers, at the very least, they got to go 10 and 2, maybe 11 and 1. They got to, you know, probably take all six from the Blue Jays and then have either Seattle or Texas collapse. But to your point, if they, you know, if the Yankees were to win tonight, you just give them a little bit more life and a little bit more life. Like, honestly, all you have to do, I think, is beat them once. You know, six back with 12 to go is dire. Seven back with 11 to go is, is way worse. So um, I, I, I don't know if any people here think they're realistically alive, but they are still mathematically alive. But it would be nice to not bring that into the equation over the next three days too much from a Blue Jay perspective. Yeah, I think their, their tragic number is at, at seven. So uh, the Blue Jays potentially can knock it down to five with a victory tonight. And those other wildcard teams uh, also winning tonight would, would really put uh, – the nail in the coffin, it feels like, for the Yankees. So, yeah, I mentioned the ups and downs, uh, extreme. This has been a very weird season, or, or maybe it's just felt like that. I don't know, Dan, you, you've paid close attention to a number of Blue Jays se- uh, seasons throughout your, your career. Is this a, a particularly weird season, or is it just magnified now because it is September? What, what is your take on what's happened here the last week or so? Well, um, big picture, the first thing that I think of is, like, if you have a great offensive team, that struggles to to pitch or struggles to close games like 2021, it's easy to identify, oh, that's the strength and that's the weakness. That's why they're winning and that's why they're losing. I think when a team struggles offensively, I think it creates a little bit more of a malaise amongst the fans than if a team is a great offensive team, but they, they don't pitch very well. So I think the fact, like, like I'll tell you, a, a friend of mine who covers the Yankees just came up to me, and, and, and I get this literally every city I go to, came up to me and said, what's going on with you guys? How are you guys not in the playoffs already? Like that. So first of all, I said, I'm not a, I'm not, I'm not a, you guys, I'm, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm, a, I'm just, I'm just me, right? I'm just me. But, yeah. but, um, but this is the perception from outside is, um, and, and it happened during the, the Boston series as well. Somebody who covers the Red Sox said to me, look at those two lineups. You know how they're posted at the, in, in the ballpark to either side of the jumbotron. And somebody just said, look at those names. What is going on? And that's the perception from outside is that. So, you know, by that, by that definition, yeah, it's been a little bit strange because th- they still have the names. It's just some of the names haven't had quite the season that you would expect. But in terms of the last eight days, um, you know, the four-game sweep by Texas, then they sweep Boston. You know, four or five days ago, they're done. Like, it's over, it looked like, right? It would be yep. incredibly difficult and not only do they win three in a row, to me, even the bigger, whoa, this is strange, 
is that Houston, Texas, and Seattle have gone to combine two and ten over the last four days. Um, I watched the end of the Houston game and the end of the Texas game on my computer last night in my hotel room, and it's you know they're both leading late in the game, right? Like Texas is up two to one on Boston. Boston wins, and then Houston takes a lead to the ninth against Baltimore and Cedric Mullins. It's a three-run homer. Here's the weirdest part of the whole season. If you're a Blue Jay fan, you're rooting for the Orioles and the Red Sox right now. That's how, that's how you know it's weird. Um, yes, it's weird. The, the math has gotten a lot better. They are by no means, by no means assured of anything. But if they can play well, reasonably well, they'll get in. If they go 8-4, and four, they're in. It is a lock. It is a mathematical lock. If they go 8-4, and four, they're in the playoffs. If they go 7-5, and five, it is a virtual lock that they're in the playoffs. And the reason for that is, as you know, is Seattle and Texas are playing each other seven times. So you got seven losses coming there, but um, you know, don't get swept here in New York, right? Don't, uh, don't go into the trough with bad vibes. Like they gotta, they gotta play well. And, and I don't know if people know this, um, if the listeners know this, the Yankees have the best record in baseball over the last three weeks. They're 14 and six in their last 20. They brought up a bunch of kids. Some of them are doing well. Some of them are, not but, it's a different Yankee team that the, than the Blue Jays saw back in May. It is. Um, yeah, they, they don't have the Martian, who unfortunately is you know, going to have, a, 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 I guess, Tommy John surgery on the, on the UCL. But this is a team that yeah, is bringing up the young kids, and, and they've produced, at least uh, in, in recent weeks. Um, so John Schneider shouldered uh, a lot of the blame over that four-game series against the Rangers. Some of it was due to the in-game management stuff, but... Some of it was like the fan base, like they, they wanted somebody to embody their frustration, right? Like they wanted him to pound on the table at, at the end of these games and talk about how mad he was. Um, he didn't do that. And lo and behold, he, he was probably correct in his assumption that, hey, we just flush it and we think uh, about the next series because they, they just went out and swept the Red Sox after that. I, now, I don't know if that's dissimilar from the other 29 managers in Major League Baseball, but... It's been since the, the word go, even after blowing that big lead in game two against the Mariners last year, you didn't see him freak out. I wonder if his even keel demeanor has, has benefited this team with, with the highs and lows that they've experienced recently. Well, uh, being a little bit older than you, I'll bring up names like Billy Martin and Earl Weaver. Right. And those, those guys are nowhere to be found. Those types of personalities are nowhere to be found in baseball anymore. It's different. The, the manager doesn't have the type of... Um, control or power or influence or whatever word you want to say. And the world has changed. Society has changed. Everything has changed, right, from the 1980s or 70s or 60s or whatever. Um, I've been in the room 10 different times when John Schneider has been asked about metaphorically turning over the buffet table after the game. And he actually kind of, uh, he laughs a little bit like he's like, it. that's just, he said, it's not who I am. And he goes, it's not what's done anymore this isn't this isn't a ball but i promise you this um he has had tougher conversations than we're privy to both group conversations and individual conversations you know it, it's not necessary for him to tell the whole world about it sometimes but i know there have been tough conversations and lessons learned and and or lessons um you know that they've tried to teach whether they get learned is another story but lessons they've tried to teach so uh, I, I don't think he's going to be – I don't think that would have an impact on a bunch of 32, 33, 34-year-old guys who have been in the majors eight, nine, ten years. I, I think he's right when he says 
they know what they have to do. They understand the situation. They know what they're doing poorly. They know what they have to do better. Uh, but I think there is a little bit more of that uh, one-on-one behind-the-scenes stuff going on that maybe people realize. Do they know how to run the bases? Like I, 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 well, I, I wonder sometimes, Dan, because that Saturday game and they weren't burned for it uh, as they, they eventually come up with the, the game-winning hit off the bat of Whit Merrifield in the 13th inning. But my God, yeah. the 8th inning. And then, yeah, the, the, the 13th inning where Vlad doesn't advance on the Davis Schneider fly ball to center field is infuriating. Yep. And I know, yeah, it's on the players, obviously. Like, it, it doesn't matter that Vlad's 24. He's spent a lifetime in baseball. Bo Bichette, same deal. They should know what to do in those situations. But here we are in September. This is not like just popping up out of nowhere, Dan. Like, this has been a season-long thing. So, for me, like, if it is a running theme, yeah, I understand it's on the players first. But they've demonstrated their inability to know the situation. In each one of those situations, it's incumbent on on either Louis Rivera or, or somebody to be yelling at these guys about what they're supposed to do. Like, that... Yeah, I don't want to get too heated because they they won the game and they they swept the series. But holy cow, Dan. Yeah. Um, Luis Rivera was yelling at Vladdy on that one. We showed a replay that indicates that. So I thought Vladdy's was the most egregious of the several. (laughs) And there were several uh, on that day. Like um, runner at second. It's an easy rule of thumb. Runner at second. Nobody out. You go back. Runner at second. One out. You go halfway. And we don't need to dive into it too deeply. But the reason is with nobody out. Uh, you're trying to get to third with, with one out to score on a fly ball, make them bring the infield in, whatever, 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 right? And, and if you go back and the ball drops, even if they trap it, you're going to get to third. You've still got first and third, nobody out. And you assume you can get that runner in from third with nobody out. So nobody out, you go back. One out, you can go halfway because is there as big of an advantage getting to third with two outs? No. Now, as it turns out, that's the kind of play that won them the game when Merrifield hit the ball and there was a runner right. two outs, that, that little dribbler. But you're just playing percentages here. So nobody out, you go back, one out. I, I have a rule of thumb. I coached the uh, Thornhill Reds for many years, and we made the provincials at the AA level when they, when, when they were 14. And if I got if it's something that would make me angry at a 14-year-old, then I generally then I generally consider it to not be a good play by a major league baseball player. But um, but yeah, it's not been good. I, I think it's been one of the biggest disappointments of this team. Varsho is an exceptional base runner. Kiermaier is a fantastic base runner. I think with a couple of blips here and there, Merrifield and Chapman have been very good. Uh, Biggio is a good base runner. Um, a lot of this is on some of the other guys. Like Vladdy has made some mistakes. Some of them are mental mistakes, some mistakes of aggression. Kirk uh, is obviously very limited at the best of times, plus has made a couple of mistakes. Like, Kirk can't be going from second to third on a ground ball to short. Just, you just, it's a non starter. So um, it is unfortunate. It was supposed to be one of the strengths of the team, and it's been a weakness. Um, I, I just, coincidentally, I looked it up about an hour ago. Fangraphs yep. has, like, a, so you've seen it. Fangraphs has a base running. Uh, metric, and I looked it up to see where the Yankees were. They're 29th. Uh, the Blue Jays are 26th. Mm-hmm. And, and, you know, when you've got some of the guys you've got, they shouldn't be 26th. I'm not saying they should be third, but they shouldn't be 26th. And it's, um, I think it's on the players. Uh, I don't think it's on the coaches. Um, you know, again, these are big league players who have been playing baseball their whole lives. And I know that Luis Rivera and Don Mattingly and Mark Budzinski and John Schneider talked to them about this. Um, but you just got to have better awareness and, and you got to be thinking to yourself before the ball is put in play, like 
a coach tells 14-year-olds when he's coaching 14-year-olds. It's, it. not just, it's not just on defense where you think, what do I do if they hit the ball to me? When you're a base runner, you've got to be thinking, what do I do if they hit the ball there? What, if, what do I do if they hit the ball like that? The stakes are high. Like, it's got to be part of your thought process out there. Yes. No, you got to treat them like 14-year-olds. And, yeah, they're, they're, they're 26th in that fan graphs uh, metric. They were 23rd in the first half. They are dead last in the second half. So it's trending in, in the wrong direction. It has not been good uh, by any stretch of the imagination. All right. We don't have a, a lineup yet for today's game. It's going to be nothing but righties the Blue Jays are going to face as far as starting pitchers are concerned yep. the rest of the way in these 12 games against the Yankees and Rays. So it raises some interesting questions about how the, the lineup is going to be constructed. We don't have to think about Brandon Belt until uh, the weekend and when he's eligible to be activated off the IL. But you got Kevin Biggio, who's been a man possessed basically since the midway point of the season. You've got Davis Schneider, who I know is running through an 0 for 20 right now, but I think the process is still there. You've got Dalton Varsho's incredible defense in left field and hit a home run on Sunday. And, and Whit Merrifield's been a big contributor for this team, although not recently with the bat. Like, how, how do you think the Blue Jays do it against righties? I think it's kind of day-to-day. You look at the splits of the opposing pitcher. If a guy's got huge splits, meaning lefties hit him a lot better than righties, you know, maybe you lean a little more left. If it's kind of neutral, maybe you don't care about that. My guess, Buck and I were coming out uh, to the ballpark about half an hour ago. The, the U.N. General Assembly is here right now. If you think traffic in New York is bad on a normal day, you should check out Midtown uh, this week. So we came out super early, and we were talking about the line. And my guess is, Biggio's at second today, Schneider's DHing, and Merrifield's not on the lineup today. But I, but I don't think that's necessarily the way it's going to go the entire time. Like, maybe they're looking ahead to Garrett Cole and saying, mm, maybe that's a sit-down day for Schneider. If he, it, it, and although he's tried to close up that hole at the top of the zone on good fastballs, you know, maybe that's – I don't think they want anybody to sit for 12 days. So I think you are going to see guys rotate through every now and again. You know, another thing is – do they, you know, if Springer needs a DH day, you know, then they can move Biggio to Biggio has been very important in all of this, right? Second yep. base, right field, third base hitting. So um, right now, I think you play the Kevin Biggio card until there's a reason not to like you ride the streak right now. Um, I think Schneider's in there tonight. Merrifield is out. Just my guess tomorrow could be different. Maybe Chapman gets one day, right? Uh, you got six in a row coming here in six days. Maybe Chapman sits out one, and that allows you to move Vigio to third for a day, and then Merrifield goes to second. Maybe Varsho sits, but uh, like I know the ball should have been caught on Saturday that went for a triple, mm-hmm. but it was a good at bat and good contact, and he hit a home run Sunday. And the defense and the base running are great, so I, I think you've got to have him in there more often than not. But they've got kind of five, you know, like six guys for four spots or five guys for four spots, and I, I think they'll rotate it around. Um, uh, a little bit, but my guess is Biggio and Schneider in tonight, Merrifield out. Yeah, uh, the, the Schneider day off thing, it, it does have me thinking, though, because he had obviously that incredible series at Fenway Park, and then he went 0 for 9 with 5Ks in Cleveland in the next series, and then only started two of the next 12 games. Uh, he's in an 0 for 20 right now. Like, the, the guy has established a longer leash than he did first time around, right? Yeah, but he also had on Saturday, he went 0 for 6. Remember, the last three right. were all like um, a couple Lasers. of them were the balls. Uh, yeah, laser to right, laser to left, laser to center. A couple of those, I think, were the ones where guys should have been advancing. But um, And I agree with you, and I think it was a good point that you made. He's staying with his process. Unfortunately, he's finding out the strike zone's a little bit bigger in the major leagues than it is at AAA, both up and away. 
and he's going to have to adjust. But uh, I would have him in there tonight. I mean, Clark Schmidt is not an overpowering guy. I, I don't think what Clark Schmidt has is specifically a problem for Davis Schneider. Um, so I, I, I think I would have Schneider in there. But if Merrifield gets hot, he plays. If yep. Vigio stays hot, he plays. And, and again, I, I'm not sure Chapman's playing every single day. Well, you know, he had two hits. He had a double and a triple on Sunday. That's great. So I, I think at 100% he's going to be out there tonight unless there's a physical reason for him not to because you like his defense, obviously, too. But um, I, I think you've got to be more reactive to smaller samples right now. Like, uh, it's it's clearly the what-have-you-done-for-me-lately time of the season. You can talk about that on the bullpen, too. If this is July and Trevor Richards comes in, you know, in the sixth inning with a one-run lead to get six outs, you're feeling great about it. Richards hasn't been the same since he's come off the IL, right? And and now you've got Chad Green, and, and you know, options have changed a little bit. So um, I use the phrase circle of trust a lot, specifically with a bullpen, but it, I think it applies to the entire roster. They're effectively playing uh, playoff games now, yep. right? I, I mean, they can't, they can't afford to go four and eight uh, in the next 12 games. So um, I, I – I, I think they have in mind now what tomorrow's lineup is, but I think it's in pencil, and they reserve the right to change it based on what happens tonight. There's still time to, to save the record against the American League East, too. If they go 11-1, and one, they'll finish 500, 26-26 <laughs> against the division. Uh, probably not, but, uh, yeah, that would be nice. Who knows? Uh, again, stranger things have happened in baseball, uh, and this is a strange team. Dan, uh, enjoy the game tonight. Thanks. All right. You got it, Ben. Take care. All right. There's Dan Schulman. Blue Jays-Yankees, first of three at Yankee Stadium tonight. Go to the Trop for three. Day off again on Monday. And then six games against the exact same teams in the exact same order at Rogers Center to wrap up the season next week. So that's it. Get used to the Yankees. Get used to the Rays because this is going to decide the Toronto Blue Jays season. And yeah, there are two. I mean, there's one rest day left still, and it's on Monday. Yesterday was a rest day, so six consecutive days, which, say hey, nothing to scoff at, but, like, no more load management stuff, no more, hey, got to get this guy off his feet. No, it's it's you play your lineup that has the best chance to win a baseball game each and every day, and, yeah, you can laugh at Matt Chapman having a couple of extra base hits on Sunday as being the reason why you don't even think twice about putting his name in the lineup today, but, honestly, that would impact my decision-making. Like, if he followed up getting pinch hit for in the ninth inning on Saturday with another anemic-looking offensive game on Sunday to wrap up that Red Sox series, yeah, would I think about Matt Chapman having a seat against the righty uh, and a righty who has pretty severe splits against lefties? Like, lefties do hit Clark Schmidt. Vladimir Guerrero Jr., by the way, also hits Clark Schmidt. And Vladimir Guerrero Jr., he enjoys hitting at Yankee Stadium to the tune of almost a 1,000 OPS and hitting his most home runs at any other ballpark that is not a home ballpark for him. But yeah, Matt Chapman looked half decent. In fact, won them the game on Sunday, so he'll be in there. The Dalton Varsho thing, boy, I know defense is important. and He's been one of the best defenders in all of baseball. This team needs offense, offense, offense. And I guess, you know, him hitting a home run in the final game of that series, impactful, having a another hit. In the series, a pretty big triple on Saturday. And as Dan rightly points out, a ball that should have been caught. Okay, that's important. Um, but he did hit it hard. Here's my ideal lineup versus righties with Brandon Belt out. Because I think despite the fact that Brandon Belt is not going to look like it, his most Brandon Belt-ish, 
when he returns, and unlikely he's going to have a rehab start. He's just going to be thrown back into the fire. I think he's he's been so important to this team that, yeah, he, he takes over his, his spot uh, as the DH on this team. But with him out, yeah, I, I think you know the, the top three of this order. George Springer, Bo Bichette, Vladimir Guerrero Jr., one, two, three. David Schneider has to be in the lineup. Has to, has to, has to against all comers. I don't care. DH, second base, whatever. For, for this thought exercise, let's put him as the DH. Kevin Biggio for me, starting at second base. Matt Chapman at third base. Kevin Kiermeyer playing center field and, and hitting seventh in my lineup, despite the fact that he wanted to lead the major leagues in hits out of the nine hole. He's been too good. I, I, I'm sorry. I can't put Kevin Kiermeyer behind Alejandro Kirk or Dalton Varsho right now. Kirk hitting eighth for me. And Varsho hitting ninth and playing left field because at this moment, especially against righties, I, I don't think the difference in offense between Varsho and Whit Merrifield right now is worth the downgrade in defense in left field. Middle of the season, I'd have a, uh, a different answer for you. But right now, Dalton Varsho, his defense is better than the offense you're going to get out of Whit Merrifield. Lefty is, okay, different deal. Um, but the Blue Jays aren't going to face any the rest of the way with these 12 games coming against the same opposition. Mention the base running thing. Our guy, Chris Black, Sportsnet producer, Blue Jay Central producer, sending out his uh, list of the analytical notes headed into tonight's game. It is gory when it comes to base running for this Blue Jays team. And you heard Dan talk about that Fangraphs base running metric. Blue Jays are bad, but they were like respectable in the first half. They were 23rd. They're dead last in the second half. That's the thing. It's like, it's one thing to have a, a bad stretch of games or, you know, to lose your mind for a little bit. It's a long season, six months, 162 games, play almost every day, a couple days off a month. Be understandable for guys occasionally to have lapses in, I, I, I don't know, attention or attention to detail. But this has been a running theme for this team. And according to StatCast, no team has lost more runs this season to runners getting thrown out than the Toronto Blue Jays. That's all you need to know. This team has been unable to take advantage of those situations with the runner on third with less than two outs. They've been thrown out on the base pass too many times. And it must be said, have had some curious decisions made in-game by the manager. And that's the difference between them battling tooth and nail to get into the playoffs and being in the conversation with the Rays and the Orioles at the top of this division. Because while Vlad's had a disappointing year, and George Springer's had a, I mean, one of the worst years of his career, and Bo Bichette spent time on the IL. Those guys had good enough seasons to produce enough offense for this team to be a lot better than where they are. But they haven't taken care of the little things. One last little Blue Jays note here before I take a break. Ricky Tiedemann, remember him? Remember when he was supposed to be a potential factor for this team in the major leagues of baseball coming into this season? Had that lights-out appearance in spring training earlier this year. It's been a year of spending a bunch of time on the IL and ramping back up and striking a bunch of people out. But but having, you know, some runs scored against him and ZRA's over five in, in double-A, but the strikeout numbers are unfreaking believable Double-A season ends before the triple-A season, so guess what? Blue Jays' top prospect, a guy who's very much on the radar for next season, maybe not as a 
starter in the rotation and certainly not to break camp, but he's going to be promoted to the Buffalo Bisons. At some point this this week, the, the Bisons sent out a, a tweet that he's scheduled to be called up. I'm not sure that I've necessarily seen phraseology like that when it comes to baseball, that a guy hasn't been called up, but he's been scheduled to be called up. So you could see the Blue Jays' number one prospect uh, get a start down the street in Buffalo alongside the International League's Player of the Week, Arelvis Martinez, who is really coming on strong recently, hitting a bunch of home runs for the Bisons. All right, when we come back, it's hockey season, you know. Tomorrow, Toronto Maple Leafs training camp opens up. Uh, still festering over the Mike Babcock situation over the weekend. We're, we're going to talk to a member of the NHL head coaching fraternity, Bruce Boudreaux, former Jack Adams Award winner, joins me next. The Fan Drive Time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Unrivaled insight, analysis, and opinions on all things Blue Jays. Blair and Barker. Be sure to subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 5.9 of the Fan. I'm Ben Ennis. It's hockey season. Leafs training camp opens up tomorrow. It's it's wrestling season. I mean, I'm not a wrestling guy, but who didn't pay attention to The Rock's return to WWE last week? I I know our next guest did. It's Bruce Boudreaux, former Jack Adams (laughs) Award winner, senior advisor to the Niagara Ice Dogs. What what, would you think of the return of The Rock, Bruce? I think this thing has got out of hand. I watch it casually. No. Everybody, everywhere I go, people, they, they don't even talk hockey anymore. They want to talk wrestling. I don't know that much. I I saw the highlights, and I know how many people watched it on YouTube, which I thought was an amazing amount, a number, and it just goes to show you how many uh, fake wrestling fans there are out there that say, oh, I don't believe in that or I don't watch that, and yet 100 million people saw it on YouTube. No, listen, I, I, I don't think you should shy away from this. I think you should lean into it, Bruce. I mean, yeah, I don't, I don't know. You, you don't want to be known as, as the wrestling guy anymore? No, I don't care. <laughs> well, I mean, I don't, I'd rather be known as the hockey guy, it, it, but yeah. uh, both. You can uh, be wrestling's, both. More, wrestling's fun. Yeah, wrestling's fun. <laughs> All right. Um, I do want to ask you about something a little uh, more serious, obviously. Like the, the Mike Babcock story has, is one that's, that's gripped the, the hockey world over the last week, and it was literally one week ago that, that Paul Bissonnette on Spit and Chicklets mentioned the story of the unnamed uh, Blue Jackets player retelling the story of Boone Jenner's phone getting uh, looked through, and, you know, it was it was less than a week later that he was resigning as the head coach of the Columbus Blue Jackets. I just, just I'm going to start, it's pretty open-ended here, Bruce, as, as a member of the NHL coaching fraternity. I mean, what, what, was, what was your thought uh, watching this thing unfold and, and the way it ultimately concluded? Well, initially, um, I mean, uh, I still don't know the 100% truth of the story, but, I mean, initially when I heard it, I'm saying, okay, they might be making mountains out of molehills here because a new coach comes in and he wants to uh, uh, get to know the players. I mean, I've sat down across from every player that when I get to a new team and and sort of talk to them, I said, how's your family, who's your family? Um, I've never asked for pictures, but I, I, in my mind, I'm picturing uh, him talking to the, uh, Boone Jenner or, or whomever across the table. So, here's my family. Here's what they, you know, I mean, I got 
two lovely kids and this and that and the other thing. And uh, um, Boone saying, well, here's my family. I got this, but I guess that wasn't the case. So I, I don't know exactly how it, how it came across, but I mean, coaches want to get to know in today's world. Um, I, I think it's important because I've always believed that the, the players will care about you if you care about them. And that's what I thought. Now, as to what really happened, I have no idea still. But, I mean, uh, I just assume from what I've heard is that he grabbed the phones and looked through all the pictures and, and everything else without their consent. That's, uh, that's my guess, but I'm, I'm still not sure on that 100% either. No, and, the, yeah, there are reports to, to that nature that it was, yeah, several minutes uh, with the players phone away from the team facility. But you're right, yeah, nobody knows the, the, the exact details, but you'd figure it's, it's, it's pretty serious if he, in fact, is, is stepping away from that job. You know, Bruce, you're, you're regarded very much as, as a player's coach, right, and a, and a very successful one, Jack Adams Award winner. Um, but, yeah, and, and a guy who's not a, afraid to be fiery, and we certainly saw that in the, the 24-7 uh, documentary, but... But yeah, again, as a, as a player's coach, and I, I wonder if that was a conscious decision for you going through, I'm sure, your career. You didn't always have players' coaches. Um, how, how did you come to, to the conclusion, or, or how did you decide on, on the manner in which you, you, would, you would address players uh, when you finally got to the NHL as a head coach? Well, I thought I'd just be me. Like, I mean, when I first got to the NHL, it was uh, midseason again. And so, I mean... He, other than just implementing what you're, um, what you, how you want to play, you you got to get to know the guys. I mean, I was fortunate in Washington that I knew about seven guys personally that I had in in Hershey. But I'm a kind of guy that um, I once learned from one of my coaches that I mean, you know, no matter what happens the night before, you you come into the dressing room and you say hi and say good morning and you know, I mean, uh, you you're human. So I've always been somebody that I thought really communicated well and understood well with what the players want. And I mean, uh, so, I mean, that's, uh, that's always the way I wanted, wanted it. Cause I mean, I looked at like back in the olden days now that they, they call it, I didn't, if coaches didn't talk to you, it used to frustrate me because we had good ideas as players and, and, uh, uh, but I mean, they wouldn't talk to you and it was like, uh, out of sight, uh, just stay, you know, you do what I say and not, and that's the way it is. There's no, there's no, uh, feedback or anything. And nowadays, I mean, it's a, it's a team team game. I mean, I think players, you can tell them what to do, but they want to know why. So, I mean, it's a, it's a different generation of players and you've got to be able to adapt to that. Uh, in in your experiences, though, like have you, and obviously, I'm sure you've, as as a player, again, gone through situations where you've had coaches, like you said, that either um, are not that communicative or or are harder on the players. Were there players, though, in your experience that did benefit from from like being put in uncomfortable situations or or like a harder touch? Um, I mean, there were players that had the attitude that I mean, if I gave them crap. They would say, "I'm going to show you," mm-hmm. and they would, you know, do it the do it the right way. There's also players that I knew that if if I uh, once you got to know them, I mean, if I gave them crap, they would fold like an accordion. So you had to handle it a different way. You had to. I mean, it's. I've always told anybody uh, since I started coaching, it's my job to find basically the Achilles heel on everybody, and then find out what makes them tick. Like, I mean. Sometimes it's taking ice time away. Sometimes 
It's uh, uh, giving them uh, crap. Sometimes it's a pat on the back. Sometimes it's it, in the past it used to be fining or sitting out. We've got to find out what makes them uh, play the best. And these are ways, but you don't get to know that unless you get to know the player a little bit. I mean, um, I used to talk about Mike Green, who I know uh, when I had him in Hershey, that if I came down the bench and started screaming at him for making a mistake, he wasn't gonna he wasn't gonna react very well to it. Mm-hmm. But if I came up behind him, for example, and just talked closely where nobody heard and said, "Mike's, I need you tonight. Come on, you're not playing that well. Let's get back to your game. Let's do something." Then it would really it, it would t- uh, push a button on him. Then he would play better. So I mean, those are things coaches have to learn, and you only get to learn. Uh, that by getting to know the the player a little bit better um and you know and, and that was what i've always believed in because i mean that's you take that from from coaches when you played when roger nielsen was the coach he was a great communicator and you could talk to him all the time hmm. he didn't always give you the answer you wanted to hear but i mean you could talk to him and that's what i uh, wanted to do andy murray was like that when i got to meet him george armstrong was like that so those were the coaches the kind of coaches that I wanted to be personal as personality goes and, and it ends up that's, I think the way I am. Yeah. Uh, and that was your reputation for sure. And uh, you know, you started with the Capitals in, in, in 07 Bruce, which is, you know, only a, a decade and a half ago, but it feels like, I mean, society has changed a lot in that 15, 16 years. And, and certainly the, the way professional athletes uh, are viewed and, and treated and their, their ideas about what's right and, and what's acceptable has changed. Did you, did you, Notice a shift like, you know, the, the 2007 Bruce Boudreaux, did players react differently or was there a different expectation to, to the guy that, you know, by the end of your career in Vancouver? I don't think so. I mean, I think the players have all reacted uh, to be, I've been truthful to them. You know, you try not to, uh, I mean, there's some things you can't tell the players and sometimes you can't tell them a hundred percent the truth, but I mean, I, I was tried to be as honest and everything right, right to their face. And I, uh, I would, I think my communication skills were as good as any um, in talking to the players. And, and I think my messages got through to them and I, but I didn't, you know, I was never somebody that would uh, try to purposely um, do something where the, the player would get really upset at it or, or, uh, you know, or, or I didn't play games with their, with their heads. Whereas in the seventies, we'd get coaches like that, that they would, play mind games with you. I remember in the minors, they'd have a coach and they'd come down and they'd say, hey, listen, the GM is coming to town tonight. If you play good, you could get called up. And obviously there was no GM in, in sight, but he'd get it to uh, to push your buttons to play the best you can. And those are the kind of things that I, I really went out of my way not to try to do or to be uh, as a coach. Yeah, again, that was that was your reputation as, as a player's coach. Now, um I mean, it was also, I mean, in your playing days, even even the highest paid player was was not making nearly the amount of money that the modern player is is making. And I wonder how that changes the dynamic when, you know, you look at a guy like a, a Johnny Goudreau who just signed a long-term massive contract in Columbus is obviously going to be treated different uh, differently than like an Adam Fantilli who was just recently drafted. I mean, how how, how does the, the, the contractual situation or, or the, 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 Maybe the, just the the way a, a player is viewed, whether it's a franchise player or, or how much the the organization has invested in that player, alter the dynamic between head coach and player. Um, 
I think you can. It. it I think it can be still, you know, pretty well. Um, honesty and, 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 and talking to them. I mean, if they don't play well or something and you explain it to them, but at the same time, uh, you take Austin Matthews. I mean, there's no way Sheldon Keefe is going to bench him. There's no way, uh, um, uh, you know, you know, you sit him out an extra shift and it's going to be in the papers the next day. So, I mean, there's, you, and you'd never want to make, uh, your general manager look bad. I mean, as a coach, I'd always, you know, if they made a trade, I'd want to. I'd want to play that guy. I'd want to make him succeed because I wanted uh, the the GM to succeed. So I mean, it's uh, there's a lot of little stuff that goes on. But I mean, like, like that. But I mean, um, at the same time, uh, he's he's under the same rules as the players. I mean, I've had the hard to make hard decisions. I sat out Timu Solani one night, which I hated doing. I mean, I I mean I couldn't. Uh, um, sleep the whole night before, and when I had to tell him, I've sat out uh, Jason Palmonville. I didn't want to do it as a veteran, but you sometimes you have to do what you have to do. I remember earlier you're talking about this. I sat out Alex Ovechkin one shift, and I got fired a week later. So I mean, <laughs> you, 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 you got to know who you're uh, who you're coaching and and what the situation is. But I mean, it's uh, um, I, I think at the same time you you put them. You can't put them on a pedestal where they can't be uh, told what to do. I mean, the other thing about Alex, I mean, I'd always use him as an example. Um, uh, quite frankly, when we were in the video room, if he, if there was mistakes to be made, because I wanted the team to understand that he's he's not exempt from being yelled at. Mm-hmm. And I mean, you just it, again, it's it's a feel, and you you got to know when to do it and when not to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I think that the best leaders uh, on teams, and you know, these are stories that I've just heard recounted, like Tom Brady. Yeah, the, the, those guys welcome the opportunity to to, to be upfront and criticized by the head coach. Uh, yeah, to, to to prove to everybody that they're not above the rest of the players on that team. Um, but back to, to to what's happened here with Mike Babcock again. It, it happened so quickly, and it started with just a. Or a remark on a podcast, a uh, very popular one, um, and, and kind of like in in joking fashion. And lo and behold, less than a week later, Mike Babcock is is resigning. Obviously, forced to resign. I, I don't know how much communication you've had with with guys that are that are still in the game that are, that are head coaches currently in the National Hockey League. But I, w- I wonder if this is a shot across the bow that hey, you, you are on alert that the, the players do have an outlet for voicing their displeasure if in fact you're you're not a player's coach if in fact you're using methods that that players do not respond well to bruce um well there is a, a an outlet you can there's a there's a hotline that you can phone uh, anonymously to the nhl too mm-hmm. i mean you don't even have to use like a, a spit and chicklets or a, a podcast as as your venue to do those things and the phpa will um, will you know um, look into it for sure, uh, but, but I mean everybody knows in in today's world what you can, what you can't say, what the parameters are, um, and, and I think I mean we can you can still coach and we can still coach and get our message across and still be under the under doing the right things in today's world. So I mean um, I don't think it was I never worried about it because I thought you know I'm not, I'm not going to be silly enough to do those things anyway and it because it doesn't come from me but i mean at the same time i've been very uh vocal to the players when they're when they're not doing the right things but i mean it's never to that extent where 
I think I'm uh, um, uh, insulting them or uh, uh, demeaning them to that point, uh, uh, you know, where they're going to get mad at me. Yeah, or in- invading their privacy, which... Uh... Invading their privacy is probably a better a better term, yeah. Yeah, mm-hmm. which seems like uh, what happened here with Mike Babcock. All right, I want to talk about um, yeah. the, the Maple Leafs, who open up training camp tomorrow, Bruce. It's obviously a very important season for them, as is every season. But, uh, yeah, this one feels especially important considering the offseason that they've undergone and some new faces. Uh, same head coach, though, under a new general manager. You, you, you've gone through this thing. Bill, Ger- uh, Bill Guerin took over. Uh, before your last season in Minnesota, the Sheldon Keefe is doing uh, dealing with a new GM. Like, how did how did that impact your your mentality or or your relationship? Or, I mean, did, were you thinking about it going into that season in Minnesota? Well, it was because I only had one year left on the deal, right? And uh, uh, so that you know, I mean, the year before, another GM, Paul Fenton, who I'd never didn't know, came in as well, who didn't hire me, and it was Chuck Fletcher that hired me. So you're always worried about it, but you just you have to try to create um, a relationship uh, uh, with these guys and uh, because everybody has their own people that they they either believe in or they would like to like to hire or they have an idea who they would like to hire. And then when you're already set in place, you've got to impress upon them that uh, you're the right guy for the job and to re- and and to keep you going. I mean, it was the same thing in Vancouver. I mean, Patrick Alvin, I mm-hmm. I hadn't met until he became the GM, and it was you know in, important for me, at least in the beginning, to to try to uh, every second day in the summer talk to him and create a relationship with him. So um, I think it's it, it'll be important for uh, Sheldon to create a, a relationship. To, to again with the GM. So, I mean, it's, uh, uh, but he's got the, I think Brad did a great job in extending him. Mm-hmm. I mean, he's done nothing um, to warrant other than winning a Stanley Cup or winning um, uh playoff series to, to warrant not um, uh, giving him an extension. But at least he, if he didn't, I mean, it would have, every time the Leafs would lose this year, they, they would be talking about, oh, oh, lame duck coach, lame duck coach. And, mm-hmm. and you don't need, you don't need that. It's going to be bad enough every time um, William Nylander has a bad game, it's going to come right. up. Or if he has a good game, it's going to come up. I mean, uh, so, I mean, it's uh, uh, you got to know the market you're in as well. Yeah. Uh, maybe keep the, the Wolves at bay for a little bit, but uh, not, not, not yeah. forever, certainly. A little bit. Yeah. Um, so the, the, not too long until the preseason gets underway. And I think I do this thing every year where I think there are actual positional battles that can be won during the preseason. And then it turns out that, you know, it, it really it d- doesn't impact the final result. How did you view preseason games as far as like obviously the top of the roster is a different deal. But like the, the guys at the bottom, can you actually, you know, really earn your way onto a team through your preseason play? I think you can. I think there's always a spot. Um, uh, very rarely are the teams that, uh, packed up, uh, uh, that, that you can't, if you have an exceptional preseason, um, uh, earn a spot, it, you know, for example, there's a lot of PTOs go out there. And I mean, people don't, uh, invite guys on PTOs without a thought that they have a chance to make the team. Mm-hmm. And so, I mean, and, and there's a lot of times you see these guys being signed, um, because they've already been told if you do this and do that, you're going to, you're, you're going to make the team. On the other hand, 
you also sign, like I think Carolina's got eight or ten PTOs out there, and they probably told them, listen, you're not going to make the team, but I mean, we're going to give you a chance to play in preseason games where other teams might take a look at you and or we'll sign you to an American League deal. Mm. And they've come in and, and agreed to that. So, I mean, there's um, – uh, there's there's always these chances, and then some guy, even from that maybe played on your minor league team or came out of junior, comes out and has a tremendous uh, preseason, and you know, and and that warrants him maybe staying up for the first ten games of the season because those games are uh, are you know like when you think about it, the first ten games of the season, uh, I would venture to guess Austin Matthews might play two preseason games. So I mean, he's still in preseason form, and if some of these guys come up and they're in great shape and, and they can score five or six goals early. They can, they can make a name for themselves and, and stick. Yeah. And it'll be fun to see. I mean, yeah, the Maple Leafs um, have some, some interesting young players. I mean, one of them, Matthew Nyes feels like a, a lock to make this team, but you know, Nick Robertson gets forgotten about because he, he was a hot prospect a couple of years ago and been beset by injuries. But he was, he was thought, he was thought to be a lock too, like, <laughs> right. uh, you know, the next year. So, I mean, a lot can happen from year one to year two, and and uh, uh, that's why you see an awful lot of, of first-year players or rookies uh, playing up to nine games, and then they uh, they they don't play the tenth game. They send them back to junior and stuff because they've had great camps. So it's going to be an interesting battle. The Leafs are deep and they're strong, and it's uh, it's uh, it's going to be it's going to be a, an interesting camp. And I, I don't think people should put too much. Um, into the first three or four preseason games, but look to see who's dressed the last three games, and you'll see the guys that are really uh, there to try to make the team. Yeah, eight preseason games the uh, Maple Leafs are going to play. Uh, Senators and Leafs in Ottawa on Sunday starts the preseason slate. Uh, before we let you go, Bruce, tell me about this new role with the the Ice Dogs. What, what does that entail? Well, you know, right now it's, uh, you know, I'm in, in contact with, one of the coaches every day uh, just happens to be my son. Um, so, <laughs> but uh, Darren DeDobler and I talked an awful lot. And the whole thing is, you know, as a leaf farmhand, I was in St. Catharines for many years and still have a lot of ties there. And I come up to Toronto, you know, at least once a month. So, I mean, I, um, and I was very interested once my son signed there and uh, me and Darren talked and he said, you know, uh, this would be a good thing. And I said, it'd be great. I'd love to any way I can help the ice dogs who haven't been very successful in recent years. If I could help them uh, in the Niagara area, I would, I mean, it's, uh, uh, so I've been to been there for a week now and, and getting to know a little bit of the coaching staff and the, the people that work there. And it's been a lot of fun getting to know junior again. I mean, it's been a long time since I've been in the junior world, but I mean, it's uh, it's a lot of fun, and I can't wait till they start next weekend. Uh, that's great. Well, well, congrats on the new gig. Congrats to your son, and and best of luck this season. And and Bruce, thanks for doing this. Uh, anytime, thank you. There's Bruce Boudreau, former Jack Adams Award winner, senior advisor to the Niagara Ice Dogs, where his son is an associate coach. And you know who didn't have to change his tactics? Bruce Boudreau. Because guess what? I mean, he hit it. That was just myself. I didn't try to be somebody else. Also, I, like, learned from my experiences as a player that that sucked. Like, I, I didn't enjoy that. And I never wanted to be that. I just wanted to be myself. Um, 
maybe that's just Mike Babcock. Maybe Mike Babcock was being himself. In fact, I think that is the indication. Don't know the man. But it does feel like the more you hear about the one-on-one conversations many a player have had, and maybe like just even look outside the Mike Comet, there's not too many fervent defenders of Mike Babcock. I will say that John Tavares, among others, had like have decent things to say about him when some of the Mitch Marner stuff came up. But yeah, those guys have been quiet since. And this most recent situation in Columbus, I, I want to do an all sides. Like I want, I want everybody to, to, to come out and tell their side of the story. Again, I threw the invitation out to Mike Babcock, who I'm sure at some point is, is going to speak on this when he realizes that his dreams of ever coaching again in the National Hockey League are dead. But it does feel like just about everybody has the same thing to say about Mike Babcock. And none of those things are good. And instead of going into the Hall of Fame, he departs the National Hockey League in abject disgrace. Oh, by the way, I wondered about this today. I went to HockeyReference.com and and checked out Mike Babcock's coaching page. And lo and behold, there's an entry for 2023-24 Columbus Blue Jackets. Zero. Zero games. Record is zero and zero. How about that? All right, when we come back, uh, Blue Jays have 12 games remaining all against American League East foes. It starts tonight in the Bronx against the New York Yankees. We'll talk to Mark DeRosa of MLB Networks, MLB Central, next as the fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Diving deep into Leafs, Raptors, Jays, and NFL, the J.D. Bunkers Podcast. Subscribe and download the show on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. I am Ben Ennis. Blue Jays back to work tonight against an American League East foe, which hasn't boded. Boded? What is the past participle of to uh, bode? Uh, anyways, uh, it hasn't gone well for the Blue Jays as uh, they're 15 and 26 against the other teams, or sorry, 15 and 25 against the other teams inside the American League East, although recently it's gone a lot better. Remember, they were 0-7 against the Boston Red Sox until they won six consecutive, culminating with that three-game sweep over the weekend. Uh, They have a chance to reverse the trend with 12 games remaining against the American League East. And yeah, the Yankees have played a whole lot better recently. As Dan Schulman mentioned off the top of the show, they're 11-5 in September. But upon closer inspection, certainly they started the month off spectacularly sweeping away the Houston Astros in Houston, an Astros team that has proved to be very confusing, not just recently, but all season long. But also recently, they they lost 4-6 to the A's and the Kansas City Royals. But then, okay, he took 2-3 out of three against the Tigers, who are total also-rans, lost 2-3 to three to Milwaukee, who's a good team, and then won 3-4 against the Red Sox team that is clearly playing out the string, and then 2-3 out of three against the Pittsburgh Pirates. Hey, you can only play who's on your schedule, and They've done that, and they've done it well. We'll see if it continues tonight against the Blue Jays as they try to shrink the Yankees' tragic number to five tonight. It is seven, so any combination of seven 
Yankees losses or Mariners or Rangers victories officially eliminates the Yankees from playoff contention. All right, let's talk to Mark DeRosa, former Blue Jays infielder, MLB Networks and uh, MLB Central host, uh, which is at 9 a.m. on MLB Network. Mark, thanks so much for doing this. Let, let's talk about the American League wildcard race because it feels like you know, there's only going to be two of the Blue Jays, Mariners, and Rangers who make the American League playoff field. Of those three, who has the best shot to actually do damage if they do, in fact, get into the playoffs? Yeah, I mean, first off, thanks for having me. Second off, I think if you're basing it on what the rosters look like on paper, you would certainly lean towards Toronto and Seattle having the edge just based on the injury history and what the bullpen situation looks like in Texas right now. Um, who do I think can do damage? I think, I honestly think Toronto, Seattle, or Texas could do damage. The reason I say that is there's just been this massive trend that you have to play a month long version of playoff baseball that you go into that wild card series just ready to roll because it's all you've known. And it seems like a wild card team and has always seemed to make a nasty run through this postseason. Last year we watched the Phillies kind of you know, put their head down and kind of grind through a bunch of people. So I would put nothing past either three of these teams making hay in the American League. I don't think there's a clear-cut front runner. Obviously, you'd lean towards Houston just because of their history with the six straight ALCSs, but I don't think Baltimore sits there as currently as the number one seed. And if you're the Blue Jays, would not think you match up well against them in a series. So... I think for me, it's just about getting in, getting yeah. in, getting hot, and and keeping it moving. Uh, I mean, it, it's maybe it's just baseball, but it, it feels like just like the last week and a half have uh, have been some insane mood swings, especially here in Toronto, getting swept by the Rangers and then sweeping the Red Sox. And the Rangers yeah. leave here; they lose four straight. I mean, the Astros last week lost four to six to the A's and the Royals. Is this just a bizarre season, or is this just hey, the ebbs yeah. and flows of baseball, and it's magnified because it's September? I mean, I think you just got everything's in-house, right? When you get swept by the Texas Rangers um, with about 15 games to go, it looks like the sky's falling down outside looking in. Obviously, those guys are battle-tested, mentally tougher than maybe they've given credit for because to rebound and to sweep Boston, and it wasn't like those were clean games. Those were grinders, a couple extra inning pieces in there. So for them to find a way, to scratch it across and offensively they've been challenged. Bo hasn't swung great since coming back. Vladdy's hit or miss. He goes deep, but he hasn't put up the year. Uh, you know, they're, they're Chapman's come back from injury. He hasn't put up the you know start of the year he had to get the ball rolling. So David Schneider, you didn't, you didn't expect him to hit 500 the entire season. So that had to come back to, to respectability a little bit, but for them to fight, and find ways to win those games against Boston, I mean, showed me a lot. So mm. you got the Yankees in Tampa for the remainder of the season. Yeah. And the Yankees still have a pulse. I know. It's crazy. And I do believe I do believe those are the teams you want to be playing at the, at this time. Everyone I, I don't like playing the teams that are playing spoiler mm. and wanna ruin your season and got nothing to lose and We'll ambush you and do some different things. I want to play teams that I know are fighting for the postseason and got just as much to lose by making one fatal mistake in a game than, than I do. 
Yeah, I mean, it, it does feel like that the six games the Yankees have to make uh, make up in the American League is is a big hill to climb. But again, we've seen some weird stuff over the last couple of weeks in the American League. You hit on a, a number of players I want to talk to you about. I mean, Davis Schneider has been such a, a revelation for this team, being a 28th round pick, being a guy that wasn't even at Major League Spring training to start this year, and and now he's he's hitting cleanup for a team that at the beginning of the season had World Series aspirations. I know it's still a a small sample, but but I, I don't know. Have you seen enough to say David Schneider is at least you know a, a, a major leaguer in, in what you've seen? Oh, absolutely, absolutely. He's bought himself a couple years in the big leagues with his production early. I also think it's a lot to ask. Think he's going to hit cleanup the rest of the way and on through the postseason. I think that would be unfair to him. As good as he's performed, I mean, certainly he's hit the skids a little bit recently. Still has productive at bats and fights, but I think that's kind of more of a somebody taking the reins from um, a veteran standpoint. The Springers of the world, the Chapmans of the world, uh, you know, some guys that have hit in the bottom of the order, kind of stepping up. But no, cer- certainly he has. He kept you guys afloat there in the middle. Pitching has always been kind of your calling card, and he was that that kind of one offensive guy that when it kind of went south. Seemed like the fans were rallying around him, and he kept you, kept you fighting. Well, and, and you mentioned in that Red Sox series, it wasn't the cleanest series that they, you know they had to scrape and claw in a 13 inning game on Saturday in a in a game that yeah. the Blue Jays had multiple opportunities to score that winning run and and almost frittered it away on the base pass a couple of times. Bo Bichette and Vladimir Guerrero Jr. with some head scratching decisions on the base pass. It doesn't ultimately cost them, but. You know, the metrics say the Blue Jays are one of the worst base running teams in all of baseball, especially the second half of the season. It's It's been a continuous thing. And they got guys that are slow, right? Like Alejandro Kirk, there's nothing you can do about that. But, you know, there's also guys that aren't slow that are making curious decisions. To see that stuff at this point in the season, like people around here are looking for fingers to point, and obviously it's at the players first. But, like, what role does the manager and the coaching staff have in that? Well, I certainly think he plays a role in it. I mean... You take on your team takes on an you know an extension of the personality of your manager, at some form or fashion. I know every team I was on did. So, I mean, if he's holding them accountable for it, you can you can live with kind of physical mistakes. The errors are going to climb up your arm. You're not going to catch every fly ball that's ever been hit to you. You're going to drop a few here or there. You're going to make some mistakes physically, but the mental mistakes, and I, I think base running a lot of that is, you know, a mentality. It's giving yourself up and, and being a great teammate once you get on first base. It's it's a selfless opportunity to get a teammate a ribby, to get your get your team on the on the board. So yeah, I I think for me, I kind of chronicled that mm. to a certain degree on the show. That Saturday game was Oof. was floppy, but yeah, I, I I mean, if you're a great teammate, you're a great base runner, in my opinion. Yeah, and that, that that wasn't so great on Saturday. Again, the the, the win the baseball game because Whit Merrifield comes up with the infield single that scores Vladdy from third base. Probably should have been at third base yeah. and at bat earlier. And, and you know what? I, I guess this was proven to be the correct mode of operation for John Schneider. But after that four game series and the and the Blue Jays were booed off off the field a couple of times at the end of it at Rogers Center, people wanted their pound of flesh. They wanted the manager to slam the table after those games, right? And 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 show that emotion but I, I i just i look around major league baseball nobody does that anymore mark and i i wonder like is that 
it, it seems like front offices are, are directing their managers not to do that. But in your playing days, I mean, you lived through it where, where managers would have freakouts, and we don't know what's happening behind closed doors. It's just like publicly you don't see that anymore. Is there utility in a manager showing some emotion to the media at least? I think it's good. But I think it can't be phony, right? Like, if you're not doing that behind closed doors, you can't go do that in the media. Mm. You can't air us out in the media if you're not airing us out to our faces in the clubhouse during a meeting. So I think that definitely, you can't lose the clubhouse if you're John Schneider, but you got to be consistent in the message you send to the team and the message you send to, to the public. I always feel like the guys care more than people think. At least, you know, the guys I played with and how I played, I didn't want to let a city down. I didn't want to let my family down. I didn't want to let my last name down. I didn't want to let my teammates down mm. or my coaches. That's what motivated me on a daily basis, um, the fear of failure in front of thousands of people. Yeah. You don't have that, and, you're, you know, if you get carte blanche to, to play the game any way you want, I think that's not the, that's not the proper way to go about it. Well. Just like stepping in front of a microphone in front of millions, if not billions, of people, Mark, I, I, I think I, I think I get it. Um, so back to, <laughs> back to that Saturday game, which was weird for a number of different reasons. Maybe none more than Matt Chapman, who's going to be a, a free agent this upcoming season, and I imagine is going to get paid. Was pinch hit for in the ninth inning for Kevin Biggio, who comes up with the single, ends up uh, scoring the game tying run. Can't argue with the process there, obviously. And then the next day on Sunday, he has a couple of extra base hits. Like, do some guys actually react to a wake-up call like that, or is that just correlation, maybe not causation? Yeah, I think there's probably a lot of variables that play into that. I'm sure there was conversations with, you know, Matt coming back, what he feels comfortable doing, who who he matches up great against. I'm sure he's going to say, I'm good. Just leave me alone and let me go. But I would think that that was not done drop of a hat in that moment. Um, because mentally, a guy like Matt Chapman, who's been a star in this game and will be again and is an everyday guy and used to getting everyday ABs, that, that could impact him if he doesn't kind of have some idea that that could potentially be on the table. But at this point, all bets are off. I mean, you're trying to – it's going to take – I mean, look what happened in Miami last night. Mm-hmm. I mean, a potential home run call gets discussed, reversed, Miami's fighting for their lives. Mets are really playing out the string. And who knows if that game comes back to back to bite the Marlins. So I, I do I do feel like every little kind of nugget or margin you can grab right now, you gotta you kinda gotta leave egos aside for a second. Yeah, not thinking about uh, saving people's feelings at this point in the season. So um, Blue Jays pitchers have thrown the third most innings in high leverage this season. And you talk to enough pitchers and they talk about the the high stress innings being different than the ones where you got a big lead. Blue Jays hitters have also had the fourth most plate appearances in high leverage. Can you speak to that, Mark? Because we we hear about the pitching side of things, but like this this team is so life and death to, to score four runs a game that it does feel like every plate appearance especially with runners in scoring position is magnified is there like a a physical toll to 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 having plate appearances that are that are high leverage as well i don't know if there's a physical toll certainly a mental toll and certainly with the names on the back of the jerseys the the offense feels a little little guilty for the way they performed as a whole i mean you can't you can't not right your pitching staff's giving you a chance every time out up and down that rotation, without Alec Manoa, who you thought was like your number one, 
how many teams could withstand that happening? They're number one completely, like, losing it and disappearing. Like, that's hard to even fathom for a lot of organizations. And we don't even bat an eye. We kept it moving, and you're on the Bassett, and Kikuchi and Berrios is throwing the heck out of it, and Gosman's an ace. So your nail's there. I can equate it back to 2010 with the Giants. Mm. I was damaged goods on that team, but I was in every meeting and every – that offense felt guilty, felt obligated to try and find a way to get three, four runs on the board because we knew and the offense knew they were putting their pitchers in, in, in a tough spot all the time to have to grind. Every pitch was so magnified. So, yeah, I don't know if it takes a physical toll, but I certainly know that that is a tangible, real thing. And that can, and usually doesn't, but that can cause like a little rift in the clubhouse with the pitchers and the position players. I've never seen it get that far, but yeah, certain, certainly the offense is thinking about that, which is probably leading to, you know, dealing with anxiety and stress when you're hitting with runners in scoring position. Yeah, and I wonder how much of that Vlad has worn this season, although he seems to be coming around recently homers in, in three of his last four yeah. games like that the baseball reference page mark is no matter what he does it feels like is, is going to be disappointing this season but is there still time for him to save at least the perception of this season in the final 12 games oh i think so i mean he sits here 24 90 certainly not the year 267 batting average less than an 800 ops he's underperformed for vlad there's no question about that that being said, he gets hot. He can put this organization on his back. So I'd put nothing by him. As long as he controls the zone, gets good pitches to hit, and doesn't come off the fastball that often, I think he'll be all right. I mean, you mentioned the Blue Jays losing Alec Manoa, who was a top five American League Cy Young Award candidate last year, and how the Blue Jays have overcome that. I mean, the Rays won maybe the best, or they, they lost one of the, the best pitchers in all of baseball in Shane McClanahan and one of the best position players in all of baseball in Wander Franco and are still in there uh, uh, battling with, with the Orioles atop the American League East with like a shoestring payroll. It is ridiculous what they've been able to accomplish over the last half decade to a decade and, and looking forward. I mean, w- can you explain what's happened there in Tampa and how they, they continue <laughs> to be at the top of this division? doesn't matter no. what happens year over year. No, I, I honestly, honestly, it's like you were reading my mind because I looked at their lineup they threw out their last game, and I'm like, I don't know how this team consistently gets it done. Mm. Like, honestly, obviously they pitch. They have an amazing manager in Kevin Cash. Obviously, they have an analytics department that will knock your socks off and just free guys up to showing them the one skill set that they do well and can repeat, and then they tell them to repeat it till the death. And they play platoon baseball. They have very few superstars. Yandy Diaz has taken a huge step forward this year from an offensive standpoint. Randy Arozarena obviously loves the big moment. They've gotten contributions from everyone, everyone. And then they bring in different shapes and sizes out of the bullpen. So, yeah, they, they, they come at it a completely different way, and guys buy in. Um, yeah, but I, your, your guess is as good as mine because <laughs> I, I don't think other teams try it. They're getting away with it the way they do. No, they it's... Obviously, identify, identify a skill set there that they're really good at doing. Yep. 
Yeah, and there's something about that building. It, it freaks uh, opposing teams out. The Blue Jays have six games remaining against the Rays this season. Might have a playoff series coming up against them as well. Uh, Mark, appreciate the time very much. Thanks for doing this. You got it. Thanks for having me. Here's Mark DeRosa, MLB Network analyst, MLB Central, 9 a.m. on MLB Network. Of course, uh, played for the Blue Jays in that ill-fated 2013 season in which they started the year similarly to the 2023 Blue Jays. Although the 2023 Blue Jays were not prohibitive favorites to win the World Series. They were just like one of the, the many teams that were projected to be in and around it. 2013 Blue Jays were, yeah, far and away favorites to win the World Series. And how'd that work out? Not so great. Better things ahead, potentially, for the uh, 2023 version as they have righted the ship for at least three games after that four-game mess against the Rangers. Still waiting to, to see a lineup presented for game one of three in the Bronx against the New York Yankees. I would be shocked if Davis Schneider was not in it, despite the fact that there's pretty severe righty-lefty splits for Clark Schmidt. Lefties actually hit him pretty well, and obviously that ballpark in New York City, it's prone to a left-handed hitter with a little bit of power. So Dalton Varsho is going to be in there, but Davis Schneider's got to be in there. I know he's running an 0-for-20 stretch right now. I know... It hasn't been as good as like the previous week and a half, two weeks, but so what? He's hit into some bad luck. He struck out a bit too, but that's part of the package with David Schneider. I think I'm, I'm starting to learn what I'm expecting out of David Schneider. And it's, it's a really, it's a hardworking plate appearance. It's a long one. It's a lot of pitches. It's taking some close pitches, which occasionally if you get a bad umpire is going to result in really bad looking strike three calls, but it's also a guy that can take advantage of mistakes. And and Dan mentioned it off the top of the show on Saturday. He had like three great plate appearances in key moments for this Blue Jays team and came up with nothing to show for it. Should have come up with at least a couple of plays that advanced runners if they had any clue what they were doing in the eighth inning, Bo Bichette, and in the 13th inning, Vladimir Guerrero Jr. But the process is sound. And man, if the Blue Jays missed the playoffs... They might be looking back at the 12-game stretch there where David Schneider started the season with those three games at Fenway Park. Blue Jays swept that series, didn't go nearly as well in Cleveland, and he went over and then got two starts over the next 12 games. And The Blue Jays had a very middling record. And then he got back in the lineup, and he started doing David Schneider things again. I think the days of... of Deciding David Schneider was just a flash in the pan and, and becoming a bench player are behind us, I would hope. But yeah, over 20 is over 20. It does stand out. Also, I mean, you can go back to the, the trade deadline for this team and, and revisit some of the discussions around their targets of acquisition. And they got the best reliever available. And Jordan Hicks has been pretty good. All those strikeout numbers are a little bit down. The walk numbers are yeah, a little bit down as well. He's pitching a contact a little bit more, but he still throws 103. And by and large, he's been an effective reliever for the Toronto Blue Jays. Yanis Cabrera as well has been an effective reliever, although he's, you know, I wouldn't say the bloom has come off the rose a little bit there. But yeah, he looks a little different than the guy who burst onto the scene as a waiver acquisition after being thrown overboard by the St. Louis Cardinals. But go back to the conversations about the bats that they were looking at. And, of course, the most attention was centered around 
Teoscar Hernandez and the potential of bringing him back. Because at that time, not only were the Mariners not in a playoff position, they were so far out of it that it was, you know, very likely they wouldn't even be relevant in the the playoff race discussion. Now, since then, they rattled off a couple of eight-game winning streaks, and yeah, they're in the on the outside of the playoff picture looking in, or at least tied with the Rangers for that line, uh, final playoff spot in the American League, and those seven games between those two is probably going to decide who gets in. But yeah, they were, I think, pretty obviously shopping the pending free agent, Oscar Hernandez, who was having a down year at that point. He's come on strong since the trade deadline. But that was, yeah, that was the the, the target of many Blue Jays fans' fascination. Less so Mark Canna and Tommy Pham. But let me tell you that those guys would have helped a whole lot, specifically Canna, the corner outfielder playing some first base as well for the Milwaukee uh, Milwaukee Brewers. Both of those guys come from the Mets, but Canna especially for the Brewers in 40 games, all he's doing is hitting 317 with a 400 on base and an 875 OPS with five homers in a little more than a, a month playing for the Milwaukee Brewers, playing some... Corner outfield, I can play left field, right-handed hitter. You can play right field, left field, whatever you'd like. And Tommy Pham, to a lesser degree, like Tommy Pham's defense is, to most metrics, pretty deplorable. But he's holding his head above water as well with the 773 OPS since being acquired by the Diamondbacks. Uh, and he has one more homer than Canna with six. But it, it's so hard with these trades because it's it. you can look at them and you can say, how how come... The Blue Jays didn't outbid the Brewers and the Diamondbacks for guys who are on expiring deals. And in Canna's case, the Mets are picking up like almost all of his remaining contract. And in the case of Fam, it's, it's nothing, not going to cost you anything. Why didn't the Blue Jays outbid those two teams? When you're talking about the type of prospect that gets thrown into a deal like that, it is so eye of the beholder stuff. And yeah, that pool of prospects. I guess didn't entice the Mets enough to go the Blue Jays route. But I'm just telling you right now, you could do a lot worse than Mark Canna in his 825 OPS holding down the fort, at least against lefties in left field for the Blue Jays as it stands. Fingers crossed that uh, Dalton Varsho is turning it around. As I imagine, he'll be in the lineup tonight against the righty Clark Schmidt. All right, when we come back, Maple Leafs open up training camp tomorrow. First preseason game this weekend. We'll talk to Luke Fox, Sportsnet Leafs reporter next. The fan drive time continues. I'm Ben Ennis, Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Covering the Blue Jays from an analytical perspective. Jays Talk Plus with Blake Murphy. Be sure to subscribe and download Jays Talk on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan. Oh, it'll be a, a scene down at MasterCard Center tomorrow. Maple Leafs open up training camp. All kinds of quotes, all kinds of storylines. It all begins tomorrow. And then the first of eight preseason games over the weekend for the uh, Maple Leafs. And bringing it all to you will be Luke Fox, Sportsnet's Leafs reporter, whose summer is over. How's it going, Luke? You got me away from uh, painting the garage. Oh. My my wife found out the training camp opens tomorrow, so uh, she put me to work pretty good today. 
<laughs> so this, I was actually going to start this with a, hey, is there one last summer thing you want to do? But no, it's like one last summer chore she's grinding you down on before you, you start working earnest tomorrow. I'm sorry about that. Uh, no, absolutely. But she's a saint because she takes care of everything when I'm traveling for 40 games on the road or whatever it is. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, the, t- the tables uh, will turn for sure. Uh, well, yeah. uh, good good to have you back in the fold, back uh, on on the Maple Leafs beat, uh, Luke. After a well deserved uh, little break there over the summer. So what? I, I listened. I don't want to spoil anything for what you're about to write tomorrow. But in your opinion, what what is the biggest storyline of Leafs camp? Well, you know what? One, one of the storylines actually has very little to do with the Leafs, and I'm just because the Leafs have the the connection to Babcock and this whole photo sharing thing. uh, I am curious if any of the Leafs who played under Babcock get asked about him. So that's, that's a bit of a sidebar, but I am curious if that story takes on a bit more life or maybe just if the players speak out on that whole situation, having been the last, uh, last guys to actually play a game under him. Um, But, but outside of that, I think a, a lot of the questions will circle around William Nylander. From my understanding, he won't be available oh. to, the, to general reporters tomorrow. They might, we might have to wait till Thursday. Um, but, you know, the guy's still under contract. But that, that's one of the pressing questions, right, is, um, you know, how is that going to affect things, him going into a contract year? Austin got asked about it at this time last year. It was, it was you know, it was a headline. So I, I'm sure that'll be one of the storylines. But when you look at the roster, a lot of it's pretty much set. Like most of the battles are just at the fringes of this thing. So um, we'll try and stir up as much drama as we can. Oh, yeah, I love it. Uh, <laughs> I do want to circle back. Like the, the Babcock story, I, I didn't, I, I guess I was naive. I never imagined it would have the legs that it had and obviously resulting in eventually his uh, removal or his deciding to step down as head coach of the Columbus Blue Jackets. And I was trying to go back and, and remember what exactly some of the Maple Leafs principals said when the, the Mitch Marner ranking the effort level story came out. And and I, I know for sure Mitch himself said, yeah, I don't know, we got over it. I didn't hold any ill will towards him. And, and he apologized. And I remember John Tavares saying, you know, sort of similar things. And in fact, he was the guy I think that was most glowing in, in his in his praise or at least his remembrances of, of Mike Babcock as a head coach. I... I I wonder how bad it really was, though, because, I, you know, my in, my inclination at the time was to, to downplay it because everybody didn't want to, to overhype it. But, boy, it really does feel like Mike Commodore was right here the, the, the further we get away from that. Yeah, and you know what? I agree with you. I, I think, you know, this is this incident in Columbus has kind of cast his tenure in Toronto under a bit of a different light. And the one thing I would say with Babcock is I think different players have different experiences. You know, you mentioned John Tavares. Um, you know, I think Morgan Riley, I think, had a very good experience. I remember one time Babcock at the podium, like, vehemently defending Riley, going to bat for him when, when Riley was taking some flack for a poor stretch of play. And, and I think guys in their prime that are going to help him win right now, I think, probably like Babcock. He, he pushes buttons. He's a smart coach. Uh, but I think it's the guys at the end of their career. You know, um, this whole thing is is kind of resurfaced. What happened with Jason Spencer yes. getting scratched on on opening night in front of the Ottawa Senators after he took literally minimum wage to play for the Leafs. Um, and, and I think the other thing is young guys. 
like this Columbus thing, I, I, I take Boone Jenner and Johnny Goudreau at their word. I don't think they were, you know, I believe them when they say it wasn't terribly uncomfortable for them. But, you know, it came out that it was the younger players on the Columbus Blue Jackets, unnamed guys. But we're talking about, you know, guys who potentially just got drafted or trying to make the lineup. Their future's in, you know, less certain. They're not, they don't have the cushy deals that, that Jenner and Goudreau have. So I think Babcock was a coach that treated different guys differently. Um, and so someone might have had a very positive experience under him. Another guy like, say, Mike Medano at the end of his career probably Oof. feels a certain way. Mike <laughs> Commodore at the end of his career. So um, I'm not saying that, you know, there was just one way he went about things, but it kind of brought back also the players quitting on him, right? Like that, it, it, I, if, I don't know if I've ever seen a team like try to get a coach fired. <laughs> and they didn't do it through their words. They didn't do it through the media, but they did it through their play that November of 2019. And then the way they talked about Sheldon Keith when he first came, came in, sorry, and, and how glowingly they were of, of, you know, breath of fresh air, new coach. Tyson Berry was over the moon yeah. when, Sheldon, when Sheldon Keith came in. I mean, that speaks volumes, right? Because players don't want to go on record bashing, uh, you know, a guy with, with two gold medals and two Stanley Cup rings. I understand why they won't go public and why, you know, even in, in the Blue Jacket situation, the players are anonymous right now. Yeah, no, it, it's it's an interesting situation. It does make you think back to to his tenure with the, the Toronto Maple Leafs. Um, and yeah, I, I'm interested to hear from Mike Babcock himself if in fact he decides to defend himself after all this. Who knows what's going to happen? But it, it does feel like his time in the National Hockey League is over. So you mentioned tomorrow, uh, no William Nylander, and maybe we'll hear from him on Thursday. And you're right to, to talk about him as one of the, the main storylines going into this season. But I, I, I don't know. I don't know how you feel about it. Uh, Luke, and, and I know the last time he was in a contract situation, well, yeah, he, he signed at the, the last possible moment, and then when he returned to action, didn't play also all that well. But I think that was, you know, a circumstance in which, yeah, he, he was just rusty and never had enough time to get back into playing shape when he returned to the Maple Leafs. The guy seems like he doesn't care too much about this side of the, of the game all that much at all, right? Like, I, I really don't imagine it's going to negatively impact his performance on the ice like i i i kind of believe him when he says yeah i got lots of time and you know i'm still under contract for a year that i don't think for him it is going to be much of a deal yeah no i i agree with you i think if anyone can handle it um you know it's him and he probably feels like hey i've been such a bargain i'm making 6.9 i scored 40 goals the same as same amount of goals as austin matthews scored and he just got 13.25. Yeah. Now, one plays wing, one plays center, one's better defensively, one has a hard trophy, all those things. But he's, he, he's not saying I deserve that much, but he's like, I'm kind of creeping towards that ballpark. And by the way, the last few postseasons, I've been producing just as much as the guys that are making the eight figures. So, you know, I, I think he's a confident guy. I think he, he knows that he's going to get paid, whether it's by the Leafs or whether it's by someone else. And he's willing to play it out. And this is not a crazy, unusual um, scenario. You know, David Pasnak played in a pretty intense market in Boston last year as a pending UFA. And he didn't re-sign until, you know, getting creeping close to the trade deadline. So just because you show up at camp with it, without a deal doesn't mean that the, the world is falling. But there will be interest because it is a critical year for him. I, and I think more importantly, it's like, 
uh, a kind of a, a referendum on where Brad Treliving sees the identity of this team. Is he going to do the exact same thing hmm. as Kyle Dubas and pay four forwards, you know, this amount of money? Um, because knowing that Mitch Marner is also going to be due a raise in a couple of years. Like, so is he just going to keep going, betting on this group of talent? Um, so I think that's, that's the question mark. Cause in a cap world, you know, as much as you love Nylander, you could say, well, maybe we need to balance our skill set a little bit. So I, I think there will be intrigue. I don't expect it to get settled this week. I think this is something we could be talking about all the way to the trade deadline. Oh, that's good. We, we need the content. That'll be good. Yeah. <laughs> we'll talk about the games, too, and we'll, we'll find meaning in them, despite the fact that only the postseason matters for this team. But, yeah, we need the, the off-ice stuff. Um, so Matthew Nyes acquitted himself pretty well at the prospect tournament didn't play in the last game of that that tournament and boy despite the fact that he only had what like a couple of points in the postseason looked the part for sure during during his brief playoff run with the toronto maple leafs i I wonder how his development this season impacts their discussions with william nylander or their willingness to 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 watch him walk in in free agency what are the realistic expectations though for a kid that's that's just scratching the surface of his professional career uh, who got a taste of it, but yeah, is going to maybe, well, he's definitely going to be in a top six role, might be, again, a really significant role to start the season. Yeah, I mean, the door is open for him, right? And and I think it's going to be a battle. Um, right now, I kind of have him slotted middle six. Uh, he plays left wing, which, you know, the Leafs sorely need um, some more impact guys on the left side, you know, especially after losing Michael Bunting. Um, for me, I got Tyler Bertuzzi as the number one spot there. You know, he's a, a proven guy, put up great numbers um, in the postseason. His very first taste of the playoffs, actually, with Boston in, in round one last spring. Um, I have him as, as, you know, top left winger. And then I think it's, it's kind of a battle. Like, where does Nyes slot in? Where does Domi slot in? And, you know, I, I think with Nyes, there's some great offensive upside um, that, that he can be a real player. I loved his, albeit brief, showing in the playoffs before uh, he went down with a concussion. But, you know, I don't think uh, Sheldon Keith wants to put too much pressure on this kid right out the gate, um, you know, going into his rookie year. I think that that's why it's kind of beneficial that they brought in a Domi, brought in a Bertuzzi, mm-hmm. and try and take a little bit of the pressure off. The other guy I would mention, though, on the left side is Nick Robertson. Mm-hmm. And, and we're getting to the point where it's like, okay, is this guy an NHLer or do the, does, or with the Leafs or does he need a fresh start? Uh, because, you know, we're getting to a breaking point here. I mean, first of all, the kids just got to stay healthy. But, you know, he's, uh, he's at a point where he's entering a contract here. I'm sure he's very motivated. Actually uh, had a chance to, to see Jason Robertson. Uh, in Las Vegas at the Players Tour, and the two of them were, were training all summer, and he said that his brother's looking great. Now, we, you know, what people say is, is you know, take him with a grain of salt, especially he's biased, but I know Nick yeah. is a very motivated guy, and he's a little bit older than Nyes, and I'm sure he wants that spot. I'm sure he doesn't want to be passed over here. So it, that is one of the more interesting battles, I think, is, is the left side. You... Are you meaning to tell me that his brother thinks he's in the best shape of his life? <laughs> I, that's, that's all I need to know. Sign him up. Uh, <laughs> no, I'm, I'm with you. Nick Robertson's the forgotten man, and it's, yeah, largely by no fault of his own. I will say, though, that when he's been healthy, 
in the National Hockey League. He, he hasn't quite looked apart, although he had that one great uh, training camp right and then, you know, didn't make the team. And he also made his debut in the postseason. Maybe there is a Nyes com- comparable there that Nyes makes the, the, the debut in the postseason, doesn't make the team out of camp. I, I, I got to say, though, I'd be shocked after what we saw out of the postseason from Nyes if he's not if he's not breaking camp here like that, what would you rate that percentage as like lower than 10%, right? Oh, maybe 10, really? maybe 10, but yeah, but yeah, you know, I, I think it's low. I think it's low. The, the organization is high on him and you can tell also by how Sheldon Keith talks about him, right? He raved about him in the playoffs. The way Keith talks about Nick Robertson is a little bit more on the fence, a little bit more. We, we need to see a little bit more out of this guy. Uh, but Keith was raving uh, about Nyes at the gate. No, I, I mean, I have Nyes ahead of Robertson right now, but I just think if we're looking for a camp battle, mm-hmm. that might, that we're taught Robertson's a guy on the bubble who may be motivated to try and push for a spot. Um, what to make of, of Connor Timmons, where it feels like the, the top six uh, defensemen are all accounted for, barring injury, and you can't do that because, you know, injuries do happen. And Connor Timmons is, has produced in his limited time at the National Hockey League, and you know, he's a right shot d- defenseman, um, and he's under a reasonable contract if he's a, if he's productive. He's also not waivers exempt, and I know that's you know this is this is a team that is also tied up against the cap going into the season. Like, is it possible that this is the end for Connor Timmons in a, in a Maple Leafs uniform? I, I'd be surprised if it's the end. To be quite honest, Ben, I, I do have him on outside the top six. I have him probably slotted as, as their number seven guy right now. And they may need to put him on waivers because they're so tight to the cap if there's no injuries. And, and you know, we have till the end of camp to let things play out. Uh, remind the listeners that uh, Timothy Lilligren suffered an, an injury in camp last year. And mm-hmm. so that kind of cleared up some cap concerns. So it, it's one of these things where they're not going to make any decisions on these things until they absolutely have to. But, you know, if, if their Leafs are, have 100% health, I see Timmons on the outside and I see them looking at their cap pitcher and, you know, trying to clear him through waivers. And, you know, one of the positives is at that time, you know, one day, two days, three days before you have to be cap compliant. There's plenty of teams trying to scoot guys through waivers. So is Connor Timmons at the top of the list of a guy you want to grab with his contract? I probably doubt it. So, um, you know, he might start with the Marlies, wait for an injury, and I'm sure I I would not be shocked at all if he gets in a few games in a Leafs uniform again. Um, So one of the most shocking things about the Toronto Maple Leafs in the postseason wasn't just that they won a round, although that was shocking. Um, was that TJ Brody was not as reliable as we've come to to believe him to be? That 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 was just really weird to to see that in the postseason. It, this is not a guy who is as aged nearly as as Mark Giordano, who yeah is obviously making a lot less than him and uh, less expected of him. What do you make of the postseason blip for for TJ Brody? Yeah, well, a couple things. It felt it felt uncharacteristic. Um, just because he had been so consistent through the regular season. One thing is he, he battled a few abdominal injuries, um, some bumps and bruises through the season. And his previous years with the Leafs, he was pretty much healthy for the whole thing. Um, so I think, for one, he was a little bit banged up. And for two, his style of play is just really smart with his stick, good positioning, I'm going to make smart plays. But it's not a physical brand of hockey. And both the Tampa Bay Lightning and especially the Florida Panthers are rugged teams. They were, you know, just relentless on the forecheck, giving them a pounding. 
So even if he wasn't nursing something going into the postseason, he was getting worked over. He was taking a lot of hits, and that's not his game. So when Brad Trey Living took, took the job, he mentioned that, you know, he likes uh, a, a big blue line, a blue line with some edge, and he hasn't addressed that yet. He's addressed a few things, right? He brought in John Klingberg that has a little bit more offensive upside, better shot from the power play than, say, a Morgan Riley. He got some toughness up front with, with Reeves and, and Domi and Bertuzzi. But the one thing he hasn't done is really made the, the blue line any tougher. So I feel like this is still a work in progress. Remember, this is a guy who used to have T.J. Brody on his team and let him walk out the door to free agency to the Leafs, mm. right, when he was with the Calgary Flames. So I don't know if he's the biggest T.J. Brody fan or else maybe he would have tried to resign him and keep him in Calgary. I don't think this is a Trey Living blue line quite yet, but that's okay because, you know, there's, there's a whole season to play out here and there's time to, to make adjustments. No, that's a great Great point. Uh, before we let you go, I mean, Maple Leafs had their annual uh, golf tournament, and no surprise, Ryan Reeves was the guy making the most noise there. I mean, you, you could talk about him being a bit player on this team, and obviously he, he will be, but, man, he, he signed up for a three-year, you know, deal that pays him almost $4 million bucks or over $4 million bucks over those three years, so he's going to be a Leaf this season and, and beyond. How much, though, Luke, are you looking forward to the, the postgame uh, media availabilities and, and hoping that he is relevant enough to, to talk to after these games? 100%. And, and that's a good point that you tack on at the end because, you know, Wayne Simmons is one of my favorite guys to talk to um, in my time covering the Leafs. Jason Spezza, one of my favorite guys to talk to. But towards the very end of their tenure here, you know, they're in and out of the lineup. So their words carry a bit less weight. They're a little bit less available. So, you know, it's, it's going to be a tall task, I think, for Reeves to be an impact player, get lots of minutes. But the energy already and the quotes that he's bringing to this locker room, I think it's a good thing. Um, he said that, you know, he's not coming in quiet. He's been chirping guys already, even though he didn't know a single leaf outside of John Klingberg because they played together in Minnesota towards the end of the year. He doesn't care. Um, this is a confident man, and you know if you if you can knock out pretty much everyone else in the league, you'd probably be confident too. I, I, I like it. I love the personality. Do I like the three years? No, but neither does Brad Trilling. I think he much would have rather get Reeves at two years, but Minnesota was willing to go to two years to keep him, and if it, and the tie was going to go to the Wild, so Trey Living gave him a third year, and you know th- that's how important um, Reeves is to, to Brad Trey Living's team. He wants to change the identity. Of this and the identity of this team, he wants a noisier room, and it most definitely will be as long as Reeves is in the lineup. Oh, yeah. It's going to be noisy, and it's going to be more face-punchy uh, on the ice, you would imagine. I mean, over under, what, one fight for Reeves in the preseason? Yeah, I, I would say one. I would say one. Yeah, yeah over point five. But, but you know what? It's not even the fight. It's uh-huh. the threat of a fight, yeah. right? It's because no one really wants to mess with this guy. No, they do not, and for good reason. All right, Luke, uh, back to the garage you go. Sorry, I, I kept you as long as I could, buddy. But, yeah, no, you got to wrap that thing up. And, and, and happy wife, happy life, as you well know. But uh, enjoy yep. the season. Thanks, buddy. All right, take care, Ben. Thanks for having me on. All right, there's Luke Fox, Sportsnet Leafs reporter, getting set to start Toronto Maple Leafs camp tomorrow. All right, a couple minutes uh, before we say goodbye. And before we do so, I do have... An announcement of sorts. All right, this is the last time I will be hosting the fan drive time. So last time I'll be on 
this time slot, 3 to 5. I am staying at Sportsnet 590 The Fan. Uh, you just have to wait, though, for an announcement on what is to come next. Uh, you'll, you'll figure that out in the, in the coming days. Uh, I, I want to say something about this time slot, though, because it means a lot to me. And for anybody that's uh, been a sports fan in the city, I'm sure it means a lot to them as well. It's been an honor to sit in this seat and uh, turn on the microphone during this time slot. I, I grew up listening to this station, and I not once took it for granted turning on the mic uh, at around 4 o'clock on this station. I'll also miss working with the guys on the other side of the glass during this time slot who aren't going anywhere either. But, yeah, we're kind of going our, our separate ways. Again, you got to have some patience. This is coming up soon, uh, but not right this second. What is happening next? But, yeah, not this time slot. So, Derek Brandale, I want to say thanks for all your hard work. Um, and, of course, producer Mike Gentili, who goes back uh, as long as I do at the station and beyond. Of course, there's an intermittent portion there where <laughs> you weren't here, Mike. But yeah, man, uh, I go back almost 20 years and you go beyond that at this station. And uh, of course, yeah, you're going to be in a different role. Um, so I'm going to miss uh, working with you you dudes. Mike, yeah. Same, uh, it, uh, same to fun. you, Ben. It's been a blast. You, you, you started that off, I was almost with concern. Yeah, and then, no, and no, then no, it was no. a cliffhanger no. ending to the show. <laughs> Where is he going next? But uh, new projects here at the fan. We're excited. Yeah, very excited. Um, uh, yeah, again, I love this time slot. I will not, emphasis on will not miss the drive home at 5 o'clock in the evening. Because that is a killer, man. Uh, so we'll leave that to somebody else to to figure out. We'll do our own thing. It, it's been a blast. Everybody that's that's uh, been a co-host with me in this time slot as well, want to give shout-outs to Stephen Brunt and Blake Murphy as well. Uh, it's been great working with all those dudes, but uh, onward and upward again. I wish I could tell you more. You got to stay tuned. You know what? Here's what you should do. Keep it tuned to Sportsnet 590, the fan for the next, yeah. You know what? Forever. Never turn it off. But yeah, you, you'll find out soon enough what uh, what is happening on the radio station. But coming up next, it is Blair and Barker getting you set for game one of three in the Bronx. Blue Jays and New York Yankees. We do have a Blue Jays lineup for you as well, by the way. And like I said, David Schneider would be in there, although not the cleanup man today. I mentioned the Clark Schmidt splits against lefties. Kevin Biggio playing first base and uh, hitting fourth for the Blue Jays as Vlad gets a DH day. David Schneider in there hitting fifth at second base. Dalton Varsho playing left field. Matt Chapman, third base. Alejandro Kirk naturally doing the catching. And Kevin Kiermeyer in his customary ninth position. All right. Again, more with Blair and Barker. More with somebody else tomorrow. Not me. Keep it tuned to, to Twitter and, and this radio station for future announcements. Uh, I'm Ben Ennis, and for the last time, this has been the Fan Drive Time, Sportsnet 590, The Fan.